Welcome to Backlog Books. My name is Kara. This is the podcast where I talk about what I've been reading lately. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. I have a quick podcast management slash informational note. This podcast is available in a lot of places, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and now Pandora, because Pandora has a podcast section, so that's cool. Do y'all remember the ostensible goal of this podcast? The whole reason I started it to begin with? The one where I try to read through the books I bought years ago and never read? Guess what? I did it! I read a book from my shelf! It's a miracle! Let's get started. Today we are talking about The Road to Underfall by Mike Jeffries. The Road to Underfall was published in 1986. My copy has 371 pages and I read it in November of 2020. Our author, Mike Jeffries, was probably born in 1943. I had a hard time finding out anything about our author because there is a Mike Jeffries who is a British screenwriter and who Google is much more impressed by. I guarantee they're not the same, even though Goodreads thinks that they are. My book cover has a little author bio which says Mike Jeffries was born in Kent, taught in prisons, rode for England, and as of the publication of this novel in 1986, worked as an illustrator and writer. It's been 35 years. I suspect he has done some other things since then, but I have no evidence of this. Here is the summary. It has been many generations now since the battle owls, the war horses, and the border runners answered the war trumpets of the kings of Elundium. The corruption of the chancellors surrounding the throne has allowed cruel shards, master of darkness, to gather his forces in the caverns of the mountains beyond the land's edge. All Elundium is poised for destruction. Once, Nevian, enchanter guardian of the realm, would have been war counselor to the aging king, but he has long vanished into shadow. Now, in the false daylight of Candlebane Hall, King Holbion sends the only messenger he has— a boy whose once proud ancestry has become a laughingstock, in a bid to alert the border garrisons at distant underfall. Untrained in the arts of war, Thane's chances of success seem slim indeed. This book is what I would call an epic fantasy. Epic like a long book about adventures and heroes' deeds, not necessarily epic like impressive. So the language is flowery and has lines like, Ever after they were as brothers, bound together by the trials faced through the long night. Just so you have an idea of what we're getting into here. If you're not willing to accept some illogical things in a book, you really shouldn't be reading this kind of fantasy book. And I don't mean the fact that the war horses, war dogs, and war owls can all psychically communicate. That actually checks out as like a normal fantasy thing to happen. I mean that the main character Thane, despite having a father who directly served the king, was one step away from starvation as a child. Thane also manages to learn swordcraft in a couple months to be good enough to beat a master. I'm also, I'm going to let that one go because that is also like a standard fantasy thing you would expect to happen. And as this book will tell us, he is destined for greatness. Honestly, 
Reading this book mostly solidified my desire to read Lord of the Rings again. The Road to Underfall begins in the dark. This book is about a lot of things, but the central struggle is between the light and the dark. Literally. While in Twilight's Kingdoms we had, sort of metaphorically, they were forces for light and dark, this one is very directly about light and dark. Long ago, in ages past, the land of Elundium was always light. There were great kings who built marvelous cities and fortresses, and these kings were known as the Mason Kings. But the last Mason King delved too deep in his quest for stone and released the darkness trapped within the earth, which, speaking of Lord of the Rings, is very reminiscent of the Balrog being released from Moria. Darkness then overtook the land, and from the stone rose the first granite king, who took up his sword to fight the darkness. Through his efforts and the efforts of the following granite kings, the world achieved difficult balance between light and dark. We hear this story from a wizard named Nevian who wears a rainbow cloak. He's telling it to someone trapped in darkness and uses the power of his words to encourage this person to believe in the light and hope for escape from the darkness. Nevian can't stay long, however, nor can he get this person out of the darkness, I guess. The current Granite King, Holbion, is, as they speak, battling his way to the stronghold of darkness in order to face the master of darkness himself, Cruel Shards. With King Holbion stand the warhorses, border runners, that's dogs, and the battle owls, a fierce army who are bound to help the king. Remnants of his human army also fight with him, and they are led by a few brave young men who took up positions of command when their own commanders died or fled from the battle. King Holbion has driven cruel shards back to his very fortress, the fabled mountain from which darkness emerged in the past. Cruel shards retreats into the darkness, and Holbion, no matter how the wizard Nevian urges him, will not follow. Holbion, from the line of granite kings who fought the darkness since it was released, and who has battled the darkness back to its very door, has a secret. He is deathly afraid of the dark. Nothing can coerce him to follow Cruel Shards and finish this battle once and for all. Once the fighting is over, Cruel Shards has retreated, and our army stands mostly victorious. Nevian, our rainbow wizard, begins to put together safeguards. After all, the dark has been discouraged but not defeated. Holbion will need to be wary. The wizard brings together the survivors of the battle, the young men who stood their ground, to each he gives a tattoo and a charge. I don't know why the king isn't doing this. Their charge is to guard the wayhouses, the fortresses between the Granite City and Underfall, which is the fortress that sits at the foot of the mountain where darkness is hidden, and he tells them to be completely loyal to their king. Nevian then tells the king that someone will rise up to become king and replace him. And here's where I had to just accept that these characters were going to act as the narrative demanded and not like actual people. Undeterred by his shame of being afraid of the dark and inability to follow Cruel Shards and actually finish this battle once and for all, this battle that has been raging for centuries, Holbion goes into a rage, demanding to know who will replace him. I'm pretty sure that kings get replaced eventually like in the natural cycle of things. So it made 
no sense to me for him to suddenly rage and demand to know who would replace him. According to Nevian, there will be signs to announce the new king, but it will be many, many years before he is born. So don't worry about it. Holbian worries about it. He strikes out in anger at the wizard, and the war animals, who were all previously on his side, now turn against him. The wizard breaks the bond that has kept man and war beast as allies. Basically, this story required that Holbian break the bond between man and war animals so that the new king could remake that bond. Nevian chastises Holbian and tells him to trust his new wayhouse captains and not to worry about who will be king after him. As you may have guessed, Holbian does not do this. He returns to his granite city and begins to hunt for the person who will unseat him. He does this for an unspecified but very long time, and leaves the ruling of his city to his greedy chancellors. The Wayhouse captains are left to hold the road to Underfall against the armies of night beasts with no help from their king. Years are spent on this endeavor, wherein Holbian literally tortures and kills people who he believes might be the new king. He is encouraged in this by the chancellors. But it is the king who, you know, dumps people in a river of hot wax to see if they're the new king. This isn't really addressed. He just gets over it one day. No one holds him accountable for all the people he dropped into a river of hot wax on the off chance they were his successor. We spend the rest of the book talking about how brave and tragic he is. Yikes. When Holbian finally comes to his senses and stops murdering people, he finds he has lost most of his power, shocking, and the chancellors have rewritten history to claim that they were at the final battle against the darkness. Holbian starts to seek out allies and finds Iron Hand, his Candleman, who, as you might imagine, is responsible for keeping candles lit to make sure the king is never in darkness. Iron Hand is the son of Thorin, one of the captains from the battle at Underfall, a man whose loyalty to the king is unquestionable. Through a series of events and following clues left by the wizard Nevian, the king figures out that Iron Hand's son Thane is going to be the next king. Holbian, thankfully fully recovered from his previous murderous impulses, sends Thane away to keep him safe from the chancellors, because the chancellors have a vested interest in keeping a weak king on the throne. Holbian writes an introduction letter and sets Thane on the road to Underfall. Hey, it's the title of this book. What do you know? Underfall, as I have said before, is the fortress at the foot of the Mountain of Darkness, the first line of defense against night beasts. The way is dangerous. Night beasts haunt the roads, and though they are mostly bound to walk in night and shadows, it's nearing winter, so the days are shorter, and some wayhouses are more than a day's journey apart. Before Thane leaves, he returns home to say goodbye to his mother. It takes a hundred pages to meet a woman in this book, and you don't actually learn her name. She is exclusively referred to as Thane's mother or the Candleman's wife, and all she does is weep, bless her heart, first at Thane's departure and later at her husband's funeral. She does, however, give Thane a scarf, which he will use as a banner and is woven with love. There's some magic in the scarf, which seems tied exclusively to Thane's use of it. 
which I guess works as a shout-out to the bond between mother and son, but the text tends to credit the magic solely to Thane and his specialness, so you don't really get any points for that. What is her name? Uh, in case you're wondering, no, actually, no women talk to each other in this book. Back to the plot, Thane does not travel alone. He befriends a horse, mighty Esteron of warhorse breeding, and has a battle owl perched on his shoulder. Together, they ride to the first wayhouse. He reaches it and learns that the second woman in this book, and our first named woman, has been kidnapped by night beasts. Jeffries gets only like half a point for Elian Bell, because she is referred to as the greatest treasure of her father's house, effectively reducing her to an object. The warriors take Thane along for the rescue because they need the help, and also the narrative needs to give Elian Bell a reason to fall in love with Thane, so having him be part of her rescue works really well for that. After the rescue, Thane spends the winter at the Wayhouse, but as soon as the Wayhouse captain Tom Bell, who is Elian Bell's father, realizes that these kids are falling in love, he angrily sends Thane away. This is dumb, for a number of reasons. Namely, Thane's grandfather was the same rank as Tombow. Also, Tombow reads the king's letter, and I'm pretty sure knows that Thane might be the next king. Even if you object to Thane's impoverished upbringing, which, again, doesn't make any sense, because Thane's dad was responsible for keeping candles lit around the king at all times, literally hiding his fatal flaw from his enemies, I feel like you would make sure that person is well paid and taken care of. Even if you object to that, he's probably going to be your boss soon. Anyway, Tom Bell forbids Elian Bell to be in love with Thane, which is, of course, the best way to stop kids from falling in love. Well-known fact. Thane is sent to a nearby manor house where we meet technically our fourth woman. The third woman is Elian Bell's mother, who is named but says nothing on page, so no points. You do get points for Marolda, though, who is an eccentric cat lady married to a deaf swordsman, and they take Thane in and teach him swordcraft. Let's not forget, at this very moment, formerly murderous King Holbion is still gathering allies in the city. Also, far away, still in darkness, there's a young person named Willow who dreams of escaping and seeing daylight. Willow forms a special bond with an old horse who he names Star. Willow and Star are enslaved by cruel shards and his night beasts, and they begin to plan an escape. After the winter spent with Marolda and her husband, Duclos, Thane briefly returns to the first way house so he can, like, reaffirm his love for Elian Bell or something, whatever, then continues on the road to Underfall. On the way to the second way house, Thane picks up new allies, the border runners who used to go into battle with men, like the war horses and battle owls. The border runners help keep him safe from night beasts on the road, and they all make it to the second way house with the night beasts literally on their heels. While previously there was no rush for Thane to complete his mission over the winter, now he cannot stay long anywhere. With a full force of night beasts chasing him, he barely has time to rest for a night before he must set off again. With help from the animals, a secret safe house built by the wizard, and a lot of fire, Thane finally makes it to Underfall. Underfall! The place the road was leading! Here, Thane is safe from the scheming chancellors. 
he'll be nice and safe here at the fortress that's the first line of defense against the hordes of night beasts. That'll be fine. This whole time, Thane has been hearing stories about his grandfather, Thorin. How Thorin was the only one who could safely travel the wilderness alone, how he befriended animals and kept the roads safe. It seems everyone Thane meets has a story of Thorin, how he was a light and kept them safe from darkness. Thorin has been believed dead for many years now, and Thane grieves that he never knew his grandfather well. Soon after Thane arrives at Underfall and delivers the king's message, there comes news of attacks on two fronts, at Underfall and at the Granite City, where the king is. The king's weighhouse captains, who are very loyal to someone who has been killing people via hot wax and ignoring their requests for help, vow to rescue the king. But the king sends out a messenger. He tells the armies to head to Underfall. They have to stop the night beasts there, or else all will be lost. Thane leads the men of Underfall into battle. While I understand that he's going to be the king eventually... And he's got a magic scarf from his unnamed mother, and all these horses and dogs and owls are helping him. But, like, at least twice in this book, he has led himself or a group of men into a trap because he is not a trained military commander. And the captain of Underfall is like, Thane, you're my best commander. Get out there, kid. This happens literally right after Thane leads men into a trap and has to be saved by the animals. He is demonstrably bad at this. Actually, Thane's only qualification is that he isn't afraid of the dark, which is, as you know, all you need to be a good commander. Whatever, as they're riding to the battleground, they find Willow, who has finally escaped from the dark tunnels and slavery. From Willow, Thane learns that Willow's people plan to attack the forces of darkness from behind, and surprisingly, that his grandfather Thorin is alive, held captive by cruel shards, Lord of Darkness. This is very surprising, because up to this point there has been absolutely zero indication that this was the case. Thorin is trapped and in need of rescue, and now Thane has even more reason to fight the forces of darkness, not like he wasn't already going to do that. They fight in the final battle. The warhorses, owls, and dogs all come to Thane's aid, which reforms the bond between man and beast that Holbion broke at the last battle. Even with the animal's help, the battle is a close fight. An ancient owl delivers Thorin's sword into Thane's hand, and the book ends rather abruptly there. Thane roars that he is not afraid of the dark and heads into the mountain. The book has taken us in a full circle. And this time, at this battle, there is someone willing to go into the darkness to defeat it. My final word on the road to Underfall. There are better fantasy books. This one was fine, but not groundbreaking. I still think Jeffrey should be embarrassed about the female characters, but honestly, I think that about a lot of authors. I like knowing how a story ends, and having this one end on the cusp of descending into darkness was certainly one way to make me want to read more. I do have the rest of the trilogy, and I was going to read them, but I started the second book, got a third of the way through, and decided it wasn't worth the time I was spending. It sort of filled me with dread every time I looked at it, so I decided to stop. So these books are going in my giveaway pile. Maybe someone 
else in the world will treasure them in a way that I could not. If you want more media like this, I know I've recommended it before, but the books of Pelinor by Alison Krogan are very good. You could also read Twilight's Kingdoms, which is also about the battle between light and dark and is also baffling, just in different ways. And that's a wrap. Join me next time to hear about The Blue Sword by Robin McKinley. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast, where I post cool pictures I take of the books I read. Comments, questions, you can email me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. I'll talk with you again in two weeks. 